1: a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Urey.
2: Pharmacy Podcast listeners, pharmacy connect podcast. This is the PTCE pharmacy connect podcast. I'm thrilled to be back anytime I get an opportunity to talk with a pharmacist knowledgeable on a treatment on a condition on something chronic that's happening to patients throughout the nation. This is important. So I want to um, just set the stage for today's podcast in welcoming Dr. Catherine Tobin. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist in malignant hematology with Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, sunnier than Western Pennsylvania, that's for sure. And I'd much rather be in uh, sunny uh, Tampa right now, Dr. Tobin, than uh, where I'm at in uh, Brownsville, Pennsylvania. How are you? And welcome, Dr. Tobin.
0: Hi, it's great to talk with you. I'm doing great. And yes, it's incredibly sunny, probably close to 90, 95 degrees today. <laughs> so you're welcome to visit anytime.
2: I do. I have family on both sides of the coast, and I love Florida. So we're excited today. So PTCE Pharmacy Connect is concentrating on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and this is going to be optimizing patient care through expert knowledge of drug therapies and treatment related to toxicities. What an interesting topic. So let's just really jump right into this. And I want to really understand... We're going to differentiate novel therapies for treatment of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is known as, I'm just going to start saying CLL because I am not the pharmacist here, which is good to keep everybody on track, and the pharmacological properties and specialty considerations for use. Can you kind of expand upon and and set the stage for our listeners today about what we're going to be talking about?
0: Yeah, so like you said, first we're gonna differentiate novel therapies for the treatment of CLL. So we're gonna look at the different pharmacologic properties as well as special considerations for the different drug uses. But then we're also going to associate drug therapy and safety as well as efficacy for each of those select treatment regimens for patients with CLL.
2: Excellent. So I'm gonna kind of jump right into this. We're gonna kind of start out with drug therapies in, in background. And I want you to kind of expand upon, you know, are there certain features that impact patient prognosis, uh, the required treatments that are already in place for modalities, um, CLL being treated historically? Let's start out with, you know, are there certain features that impact patients' prognosis?
0: This is a great question. So before we even go to certain features, let's just define what CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia is for listeners. So CLL is actually our most common leukemia among adults, and it's characterized by clonal proliferation and accumulation of mature B cells. So this can happen in a few different places. This can occur in the blood, the bone marrow and lymph nodes, as well as the spleen. And it does require presence of more than five times 10 to the nine um, monoclonal B lymphocytes in the peripheral blood. So it does require specific lab value. Now, getting into the prognostic factors, there definitely are some that are important that help us differentiate between favorable, intermediate and unfavorable disease. So first we'll talk about favorable disease. So that includes the presence of deletion 13Q, and that can be seen on FISH, or presence of the IGHV mutation, and that's looked at on DNA sequencing. Now, unfavorable disease, which we'll talk a lot about today, there's a few different markers that can um, signify unfavorable CLO. So one of them is the presence of deletion 11Q or deletion 17P. And deletion 17P is also associated with another poor prognostic factor, the TP53 mutation. Now, I just said the IGHV mutation is favorable. So on the contrary, if the patient is unmutated, which is the presence of 2% or less, then that's unfavorable. And that those patients typically do not do as well. And lastly, a complex karyotype. Um, So that's a little more rare, but complex karyotype, which is defined as greater than or more than three unrelated abnormalities in one CLL cell, also will put patients in that unfavorable category.
2: So, Catherine, what about requiring treatment? Do all patients require treatment for CLL?
0: No, not all patients with CLL do require treatment. So there's still a very large subset of patients that can be appropriately appropriately managed with what we call watch and wait or just an observation method. Now the indications for treatment include, there's quite a long list. So one of them is the presence of any disease related symptom. So if a patient's present to clinic and having true symptoms, then that's when we would treat uh, bone marrow failure, so that's when patients present with platelets less than 100 or hemoglobin less than 10. If patients have any massive or symptomatic splenomegaly or lymphadenopathy. Um, another indication for treatment is progressive lymphocytosis, so that's when a patient will present with a greater than a 50% increase of their lymphocytes over a two-month period or a doubling time of less than six months. And a few other indications. Sometimes our CLL patients will actually present with autoimmune cytopenias that are not responsive to steroids, or if they have any other type of symptomatic extranodal involvement. So really, when patients present with any symptoms related to the disease, that's when we want to start treatment. But not all patients will require treatment upfront.
2: You know, the evolution of drug development, clinical trial innovation digital therapeutics, all of these things that are coming back to the management of treatment of different chronic disease states are all coming back to the pharmacist. And I think of the history of treatment. So let's talk about CLL in being treated historically. Can you kind of expand upon that just to set the stage for our listeners?
0: Yeah, so CLL treatment really has come a truly a long way, and it has changed drastically over the last several years. So if we talk historically in the early 70s, 1980s, there really were very limited options. A lot of times it was watch and wait, or there were sometimes that patients would get monotherapy with specific chemotherapy agents, like alkylating agents, such as chlorambucil. Sometimes we'll use cyclophosphamide or fludarabine at that time. And then a few years later, we started trying combination therapy. So fludarabine with cyclophosphamide or cladribine with cyclophosphamide. And although that did lead to some improvements in the patient's response rate, um, it really didn't give us the response we are hoping for. Now, a significant breakthrough occurred in the 1990s with the use of rituximab, which was the first anti-CD20 monoclonal that was used in CLL. This eventually led to what we call chemoimmunotherapy, the most common one was FCR. So that includes three different chemotherapy agents, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. Now those initial results that triplet therapy really did show an improvement in a progression-free survival, but it still really wasn't what we were looking for. So other anti-CD20s came out in the early 2010s um, that were used in the relapse refractory setting, including ofatumumab and obinutuzumab. But really our treatment landscape truly changed in 2013 with the approval of abrutinib. So abrutinib is one of our oral targeted treatments that we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about today. It was first approved in the relapse setting, and then a few other oral agents came out at that time Idolalisib, venetoclax, You know, even though these were all first approved in the relapse setting, a lot of studies have now been done in the frontline setting, and that's what's really changed the treatment landscape. So I would say overall, we used to use a lot of old school chemotherapy, and that's been phased out. And now we're using a lot more of our oral targeted agents, like abrutinib as well as venetoclax, that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today.
2: Dr. Tobin, that's really fascinating to know that pharmacists are able to participate with feedback to the care teams as to the combinations of therapy. I kind of want to dig into that. How is the changing with oral drugs and combinations of therapy? How is that happening uh, currently today?
0: so as you said, the treatment landscape has really shifted dramatically with the addition of all these oral agents. So now patients really are able to take true responsibility of their own treatment at home with the oral chemotherapies or oral agents. So there are multiple different options. Now, there are two main drug classes that we utilize. The first one is called Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or I'll just refer to it as a BTK inhibitor. And then the other drug class are BCL2 inhibitors. Now there's only one BCL2 inhibitor on the market called venetoclax. However, the BTK inhibitors, there's multiple. So there's a brutinib, a calibrutinib, and even xanabrutinib. And you know you really can mix and match these. Um, there's certain indications of when the patients may tolerate or be a uh, better fit for one agent versus the other. There are sub- small subset of patients that we will utilize chemoimmunotherapy, immunotherapy, but I would say that's very, very rare. And so there's discussion ongoing trials of looking at even triplet therapy. Um, That's something that's really just in the context of a clinical trial. But most of all, I would say 99% of our patients that do require treatment, they will receive treatment with one of our oral targeted options. So either a BTK inhibitor with or without something as well as venetoclax with or without one of our CD20 monoclonals.
2: Okay, so I want to... I wanna talk about some of the more recent clinical data supporting the use of these agents for a patient that is newly diagnosed with CLL. Um, I am curious to understand that. I'm sure our listeners wanna hear more about that as well.
0: So there are many, many key trials that have led to the approval and recommendations for frontline treatment. So I'll name off a few. So there's Resonate Two, Illuminate, Alliance, ECOG-1912, all of these specific studies looked at a brutinib in the frontline setting, and all of them showed a benefit in progression-free survival. Now, there are also studies that looked at a acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab, such as Elevate-TN, and when we think about our um, BCL-2 inhibitor venetoclax, that was looked at in the CLL-14. And Sequoia also looked at Xanabrutinib. Now I could sit here and talk to you for several hours about all these studies. But for the sake of time, let's just pick a few. And I'm going to discuss the ones that I think are most prominent and really cha- led to key practice changes. So the first one is the Resonate-2. And this looked at abrutinib, And I really feel like you cannot talk about abrutinib without talking about the Resonate trials. So these trials really are what led to the approval of Ibrutinib, and they truly were the landmark trials. Now Resonate Two looked at treatment naive CLL patients. So like you said, we're looking at newly diagnosed, and they looked at patients that were 65 or older, but the one thing that they did leave out is they left out our high-risk patients of deletion 17P. So this study looked at treatment naive CLL patients, so as you mentioned, newly diagnosed, and it looked at patients that were 65 years or older, and the key thing to keep in mind here is that it excluded patients with deletion 17P. So it did exclude some of our high-risk patients. Now, it compared Ibrutinib once a day versus Chlorambucil. And Chlorambucil was used in this study because at the time of the study, Chlorambucil really was one of our frontline options. So after six and a half years, they looked at the primary endpoint, which was progression-free survival. Now, over half of our patients were still on therapy, so that shows really good tolerance and efficacy of ibrutinib. Most of our toxicities did resolve with time. About 23% of patients did require dose reduction of brutinib. However, as we looked at over time, those dose reductions and discontinuations continued to decrease. So again, that's showing us good tolerance of the medication. Now we want to look at side effects. You know, most common was neutropenia, which was seen in 13% of patients, 12%, we saw pneumonia and hypertension and 8%. And I really want to point out this hypertension because this most commonly occurs with prolonged treatment and it doesn't necessarily appear immediately after starting a It's
2: like the power rangers of therapy against the c LL of the, of, of this condition and world. And I kind of want to understand, you know, what treatments are preferred uh, for a patient that is starting therapy?
0: Yeah. So, you know, looking at this Resonate 2 trial, this really showed us that abrutinib was preferred in that frontline setting, regardless of IGHV mutation status, because patients did well, whether they're mutated or unmutated. The one subset of patients that we cannot really say may benefit at this time was due to the deletion 17P just because they were not included. So overall, the bottom line with Resonate 2 is a brutinib was superior to the old school chlorambucil and frontline treatment of CLL. And overall, patients did tolerate the treatment fairly well. Now you may be wondering about what about our other BTK inhibitors like a Acalabrutinib? So this is another preferred frontline option. So how do we choose between the two? Uh, if you'd like, I'd like to spend some time talking about the Elevate TN or the Elevate Treatment Naive study.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: So, this study looked at treatment naive patients, again, the older population of 65 or older, but it also included younger patients with comorbidities. So, that's a key thing that now we have some data with younger patients. Now, patients were randomly assigned to three different arms. We had a calibrutinib on its own, we had a calibrutinib with obinutuzumab or we had chlorambucil with obinutuzumab. Now, the obinutuzumab was used, it was introduced in the second cycle, and this is really standard for CLL treatment. Now, the BTK inhibitor or the acalabrutinib was taken continuously. So the patient started it and they continued it all the way until treatment progression or intolerable side effects. However, obinutuzumab was only given for a finite duration. The medium follow-up of this study was about 47, 48 months and treatment was ongoing in 75% of patients with acalabrutinib and obinutuzumab and about 70% in obinutuzumab monotherapy. And close to 40% of patients in the chlorambucil arm crossed over to the acalabrutinib arm. So looking at progression-free survival, which is really what the we we're looking at in this study, again, it was not reaching acalabrutinib, but it was only 28 months with the chlorambucil. So looking at the good risk patients that IGHV uh, unmutated, they still did much better. Um, And then key thing is this patient or this study included our poor risk patient population of deletion 17p, and they still did better. So their progression free survival was not reached with the of arms versus it was not even 18 months with chlorambucil. So Overall, what this is telling us is that when we use a calibrutinib or a BTK inhibitor with or without obinutuzumab, it led to progression-free survival benefit, both in patients that were IGHB unmutated, so poor risk, or mutated, um, but keep in mind that the study did not was not powered to tell us the difference between a calibrutinib on its own or a calibrutinib with obinutuzumab. So what this led to is that we now have another BTK inhibitor option up front, which is a calibrutinib.
2: Dr. Tobin, is there any other treatments that we haven't mentioned that you can expand upon?
0: Yeah, so we've only talked about two of our BTK inhibitors. We've only talked about a brutinib and a calibrutinib. So there's still another one called zanubrutinib, And there was a study looking at this called Sequoia. So I would like to point out that Xanabrutinib is not yet FDA approved for CLL. However, Sequoia trial showed us that there is some benefit, so it is listed as an option for the NCCN guidelines. So just high level what Sequoia did is it looked at Xanabrutinib versus bendamustine and rituximab. You know, it had a, again, a primary endpoint of progression-free survival, and it was not reached with Xanabrutinib versus about 35 months with the chemo arm. So the bottom, what this study showed us is that treatment-naive CLL patients are able to use this option, um, but we would, I do want to point out that there was not a benefit in the mutated IGHB patients, but that's just our BTK inhibitors. We haven't even talked about venetoclax. So venetoclax is our only available BCL2 inhibitor, and it also works really well in the frontline setting. So the key trial that really brought venetoclax into play was called the CLL14 trial. So this trial included treatment-naive patients um, that either had that they had some type of other comorbidities, and the median follow-up was around 40 months. So there were two different arms. Patients received venetoclax with obinutuzumab, which is the normal CD20 that we use in CLL, or the other arm was chlorambucil with obinutuzumab. Obinutuzumab was given for a finite time, only six cycles, and the venetoclax was also only given for a finite treatment of 12 cycles. So key thing here is this is the first trial that we've talked about in frontline CLL that treatment was only confined to a finite period of time. Now, the primary endpoint, again, was progression-free survival. And after about 40 months, patients in the venetoclax and arm had a significantly longer progression-free survival than the other arm. Um, so the median progression-free survival was not reached in venetoclax, Versus about the 36 months in the chlorambucil obinutuzumab arm. Again, there were some toxicities in both arms. They did see some neutropenia, but really the key thing that this showed us is that fixed duration venetoclax and obinutuzumab in the frontline setting, again, is associated with the superior progression-free survival in our CLL patients. It also looked at other things such as MRD negativity, which is really exciting in CLL. So basically what it's showing is that we're having a really good response and patients can do really well. So ultimately, this trial led to the approval of both venetoclax and obinutuzumab combination in our treatment-naive patients.
2: Dr. Tobin, there's millions and millions, if not billions of dollars spent on clinical trials, technology development, and new therapies that are coming out, which is so exciting, and the fight against um, so many different chronic conditions and cancers, and in this case leukemia, and I think of clinical trends and future of where we're going. It's the pharmacist that gets to see how these treatments are impacting their patients first, before any uh, you, know, you know healthcare provider which is very special, the, the, the relationship that pharmacists are building with their patients. And I'm wondering, you know, what may be coming in the future for these agents and the treatment of CLL overall?
0: And so I'm really excited about the future of CLL treatment. Um, so not only has it really transformed the last several years, but I can foresee it transforming even more in the next few So there's a lot of exciting things happening. So first, there's a new BTK inhibitor in development called pertobrutinib. So pertobrutinib, as I said, it's in development, so it's not yet FDA approved, but this is the first reversible BTK inhibitor. So it is being studied in CLL as well as other malignancies, and it differs from our other BTK inhibitors because, well, this will be the first reversible or non-covalent. And so what does that really mean? Is that means that it's going to work independently to covalent binding of the other ones. So it's possible that it can achieve inhibition of both wild type and mutated BTK. So as you can imagine, with prolonged treatment, mutations are possible, leading to patients not being able to tolerate treatment or progressing on treatment. And it's thought that pertobrutinib may be able to bypass those mutation concerns. there's a lot of other exciting things happening. So, you know, we talked about fixed duration treatment with Venetoclax, but there are many other trials looking at fixed durations of other combinations, as well as using what we call MRD as a guide. So I briefly mentioned MRD. So what is it? So MRD is minimal residual disease. And this is a really important milestone in the treatment of patients with CLL. So, the definition of this really helps us determine um, a complete response for a specific therapeutic regimen. And the definition is if a patient would have less than one CLL cell and about 10,000 leukocytes. Now, there are a lot of different tests out there to test for this. um, But I think what's really exciting is a lot of our studies are standardizing using MRD as a guide to give us a better idea of. You know, what should we do six months after treatment, or what should we do a year after treatment? And of the data that's been published so far in CLL, we do know that MRD status is strongly associated with a prolonged progression-free survival and overall survival. So it's likely to be important for our other combination regimens with venetoclax, or even the other more exciting combinations that are in studies. So it is a very promising endpoint. It's an imp- very impressive for data to be shown with that in our early
2: studies. Thank you so much for this information and really digging down into the treatments that are available and those treatments that are coming in the future. It's really exciting. I also want to ask in this last question for the listeners specifically, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in today?
0: So I would say, you know, CLL treatment really has shifted significantly over the last several years. And it continues to include primarily oral targeted treatments. So our BTK inhibitors or our BCL2 inhibitors. Now both regimens provide extremely promising results in both our frontline and even relapse setting. And I'm really excited about the future treatment landscape as we continue to look at different combinations of therapy.
2: Dr. Tobin, I wanna thank you so much for your time today and sharing this information with our listeners. Listeners, if you're out there, PTCE Pharmacy Connect has an entire library of continuing education. You can Google PTCE Pharmacy Connect or go to PharmacyTimes.org. Regardless, all of the content is there, and there's so much amazing content that you can use while you're driving, jogging, doing something where you're just listening to to get your CE. I want to thank PTCE Pharmacy Connect's team, We so much appreciate all of the support that you've given to the Pharmacy Podcast Network, as well as our pharmacists out there who are our champions. We are excited about the coming of part two on this subject. Um, Dr. Tobin, do you want to give us just a short summary of what we can look forward to for part two?
0: Yeah. So part two of this segment, we're really going to do a deeper dig into the actual drugs themselves. So we'll talk more specifically about what to watch out for, for the specific oral targeted agents we've talked about, as well as how to handle the toxicities and really the pharmacist role and what we do in the frontline setting.
2: Pharmacists, you are our favorite providers. Thank you for all of your work that you do. Please Let us know if there's anything we can ever do for you, the Pharmacy Times team, the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team, and obviously our Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thank you so much for all that you're doing throughout the nation, caring for our 330 million citizens that are out there. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.